you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. I love starting with baptism. You know, when, when Emily was getting out of the water a minute ago, she made sure and slung that leg over and just get me nice and wet. Uh, love that. Got it all over my pants. But hey, they're water resistant. They're the perfect pants. What can I say? That's an inside joke. But these are them. You can admire them later on. Uh, kind of wish that there was a guard in front of this pulpit now so that you wouldn't be looking at me like that. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be. You know, I love the song we just sang that says, Now all I know is your forgiveness and embrace. I don't know about you, man, but I'm with myself all week, and I know how unworthy I feel to be embraced by God. Um, not just tolerated. But t- one thing will be tolerated, but embraced. Today we're going to talk about that, just how embraced we are because of the work of Jesus. Uh, a couple days ago, Brooke, my wife Brooke, and uh, our oldest kid is Shiloh. She's our daughter. She's six. They were um, cooking together. I'm using that very loosely uh, because you don't trust a six-year-old around a stovetop. Um, but they were cooking together, and uh, they had some water boiling. And so Brooke said, okay, Shiloh, uh, pour this bow tie pasta into that water. And so Shiloh grabs it, and it's like she's, you know, holding an 800-pound cauldron. She's like, you know, and the hands are shaking. It's like, oh boy, this is not good. And so she goes, and Brooke's like, yeah, just pour it in there. I mean, it's a big, it's a big thing, right? It's like, there's the mark. You can't miss it, right? Oh, that's wrong. She pours that thing. It just goes all over the stove. There were definitely more noodles outside of that pot than inside of that pot. And we're just like, this is fine. We laughed it off. You pick it up. You're like, it's, we're making a memory here, right? Seconds later, it's like, all right, now we're going to pour the heavy whipping cream from this carton into this uh, pan of chicken. And so she goes, Shiloh, can you do that? Takes it and then just misses. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big, you know, you can't really miss it. And yet she proved us wrong. And I, I'm kid about that. The word for sin is, is an archery term. You may have not have known this, but the word for sin, which we say a lot, meaning to, to do bad things or to disobey God. But that word is, historically speaking, in ancient times, they used it for archery. And you may have heard me say this before. I think it's a good analogy. You'll see this target behind me. That's kind of why I chose that. The word sin, it literally means to miss the mark. What's the mark? It's a target, right? And so in archery, they would sin. It wouldn't be the word sin. It starts with the huh sound of hamartia. But they would miss it. And so anytime they missed that target, they would call that what we would call sin. It simply means to miss the mark. But it also means as a result of missing the mark, not sharing in the prize. Again, think archery. So not only have you missed the target, but you also don't share in the prize. Isn't that a good um, explanation of our sin problem? Is that we miss the mark of God's holiness, God's instruction to us. And as a result of that, naturally speaking, we got a big problem on our hands. Is that we, we also lack the prize. We don't share in the prize of heaven and glory apart from God doing something. A target missed of sinlessness and a prize that is not gained of nearness to God. And this is not new. I mean, all the way back in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they sinned. They, they missed the mark. And they were un, imperfect at that point. They were removed then from the Garden of Eden. They could not be near God as a result of sin, as a result of missing the mark, they were also stripped of the prize of being near God. And so they had to be distant and removed from him. And for us, it's the same. We have a target missed and a prize lost. You may have read that and thought, oh, we're going to talk about how we hit it and we get it. No, we miss it and we lose it. That's our problem. But the good news that we're going to arrive at today is that Jesus hit the target that you could never hit. And Jesus shares with you the prize that you can never earn. 
That's the gospel. He hit the target you could never hit and shares with you the prize that you yourself, by yourself, could never earn. We're going to latch on to that one this morning, all right? Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18 this morning. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. And I'll say this real quick. We, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. If you're a guest of ours today, we, we've been going through Hebrews for, this is the 21st message in this book. And so uh, we're nearing pretty close to the end. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, it says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Four, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. He then added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of, sin, of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This, many of you will be happy to know, is really the end of a major section in the book of Hebrews. It's the end of the doctrinal section. After this is a very applicational section of the letter. And so next week, we're going to take a big shift and a big turn. And so he is, I mean, you may have noticed this already, you may have heard a lot of repetition from what we've talked about in the past. It's because the author of Hebrews is summarizing. He's summarizing in a big way, a grand finale of all the amazing things that he's unpacked about the priesthood of Jesus. A target missed for us and a prize unearned for us. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see how those realities are ultimately made wonderful in the name of Jesus. And I'm going to give you three things to take away this morning. The first one is this, the reminder of sin. The reminder of sin. And we're going to see this in verses one through four, the reminder of sin. Now, you may have seen in this passage we just read, and again, if you've been here in the weeks prior, the word perfect. The author uses the word perfect oftentimes. The word perfect, made perfect, gonna be made perfect, being made perfect. When I think of that phrase, sometimes I think, or that, that word, sometimes I think of in our culture, nobody's perfect, right? We say that. Well, nobody's perfect. Why do we say that phrase? Well, nobody's perfect. It's a way that we say to, to sort of comfort ourselves into thinking, well, I'm no different than anybody else. And so, well, nobody's perfect. That sort of brings some comfort. And that mentality, by the way, works in the workplace, when you make mistakes, everybody's, nobody's perfect, everybody makes mistakes. Or in school, well, I didn't get 100. Well, nobody's perfect. Or in sports, I struck out. Well, nobody's perfect. 
But that mentality, while it works in the world, it does not cut it in heaven. It doesn't cut it in heaven. And that's a problem for us because only perfect people can spend eternity with God. And you're like, hold on a second. That doesn't sound very good. You better believe it doesn't sound very good. We got a big problem. Now, we'll get somewhere with the good news of the gospel momentarily. But imperfection is a big problem for anyone who wants to be in heaven with God because God is perfect. God is sinless. He is holy in every way. And the only way that we can be saved is if on judgment day we are perfect. And that's a problem for me. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. It's a problem for you too. That's a big problem because on judgment day, we, we're not perfect people, right? There's this day coming and we kind of have this mentality of, well, it's coming and we're going to see. You know, there was a, a space shuttle launch. Uh, I guess it was a, a shuttle. It was this massive SpaceX thing that happened just a week ago, right? Do you guys know about this? And they, they shot this gigantic, massive rocket into space or attempted to, and it, got, it cleared the tower, which is a big deal. And so it was a big success in that way. And yet when it got real, real high in the air, what happened? No, it did not explode. It, quote, rapid, unscheduled disassemblied, <laughs> which means it exploded. That's how they, like, oh, no, no, no. It just had a rapid, un unscheduled disassembly. That's an explosion. When it comes to space shuttle launches, they, they can do all these checks and balances. But really, I mean, you guys know how it is. You think about the Challenger and other launches before. It's like, we'll see. Like, like we're doing the very best that we can. But on Judgment Day, when it's launching, we'll see. There's a lot of uncertainty there when it comes to a space shuttle launch. Judgment day will not be good for us if we still have our problem. But that day for us, when we die, it doesn't have to be a, well, we'll see. Did I, did I check myself enough? Did I, did I behave enough? Did I do enough good things? If that's what you're leaning on, I'll just go ahead and tell you. You didn't. You won't. You can't. But it doesn't have to be a, well, we'll wait and see because of what Jesus has done. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus hit the target that you never could, and he ascribed to you the prize that you could never earn. That's the gospel. And so it doesn't have to be a we'll see. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus and make him your Lord and Savior, just like we celebrated a moment ago, it doesn't have to be pending in the balance. We'll wait and see. It can be a day of confident glory because of the one who has made it glorious. Perfection in Hebrews simply means that someone's sin has been cleansed and removed. That's what perfection means. It means that your sin has been cleansed, washed away, and removed from you. In other words, you are no longer defiled, but you are innocent. And you're thinking, but these people aren't perfect. Well, they're not, but they are at the same time. Anybody that's a Christ follower is not perfect, and yet is called perfect, innocent, complete. And we're going to talk more about that in a few moments. What the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 10, the first few verses, verses 1 through 4, He's talking about the Old Testament law, which is the sacrificial system he's specifically referring to. He's talking about its inadequacy. In what ways was it inadequate? Well, they had to be perfect in order to be given the thumbs up. They had to be perfect. They were given a law, commandments. They didn't hold them. They were then given, because they sinned, a sacrificial system to cover. But they had to come back and bring them and bring them and bring them. In other words, it was a way to see that they were continually doing them every year. Meaning, if you got to do it again next year, it wasn't a perfect sacrifice. They had to keep coming back and keep being cleaned and washed. And this is what he's saying in verses 1 and 2. For since the law and those sacrifices has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, don't miss the word never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw 
near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if you were made perfect, why are they still being offered? They're still being offered because you're not made perfect. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But they do, is what he's saying. If they were truly effective to make the sinner pure, they would have ceased because the job would have been finished, but they could not perfect. He says, since the laws, what a shadow of the true form. Why does he use those words? He uses those words because he's telling them that the very nature of that system cried out. The very nature of that system longed for a true remedy to come. It longed for that. The word perfect, as I said, is mentioned several times in this letter. It's twice here in these verses we're looking at. A couple other places, um, Hebrews 7, 11. I'm not going to read these whole verses, but I want you to just look for the word perfection in the verse. Now, if perfection, it says, Hebrews 7, 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood under the people received the law, there would be no further need. That's what he's saying. So, in other words, if they had been, they weren't. Hebrews 7, 19 then says, for the law made nothing perfect. It's clear as day. It made nothing. In other words, the law made no one permanently clean before a holy God. Hebrews 9, 9 talks about the symbolic of the present age and says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Can it be any more clear? The law's sacrifices were like a car wash. Has anybody had a car wash above all car washes where you never have to get a car wash again? No. That's why there are a billion car washes in Meridian, Mississippi. Apparently, it's a good industry. I'm in the wrong field of work, you guys, because why do they keep building these things? People must be going to them. I mean, you vain people just love car washes. I don't know what it is. But there are. There's so many. In fact, there's monthly memberships now. That wasn't a thing that long ago. We must just, I don't know. There's something going on. Maybe it's like money laundering. Maybe there's some like breaking bad stuff going on that I don't know about. I don't know. The presence of the car wash is an ongoing reminder that our cars are perpetually unclean. In other words, the car wash industry would be out of business if one cycle got it done. See what I'm saying? There would be no car washes if one car wash got it done forever. But they're everywhere because it's a reminder of the perpetual need for your car to be clean. And that's the same thing that is true with the author of Hebrews is saying, is that that system still being around is evidence that it will forever be needed if something doesn't change. Does that make sense? He uses a, a different kind of direction here. And I'll, I'm going to use another analogy to explain that. Verses 3 and 4 say, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder. I want you to read, not, not removal, but reminder. A reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A reminder of sins, not a removal. You guys may, may have weeds in your yard. We've got some weeds that come up every year. I mean, that's just what happens, right? If you have grass, you probably are going to have some weeds. Uh, and whenever you pull a weed up, what do you do? You, you just break it off at the surface, right? No, because then it comes back like die hard with a vengeance. And there's eight of them just like it or something, right? If you break off a, a weed at the surface, it does nothing. That weed just sprouts back up. But what do you have to do? Tell me. Yeah, you got to go down into the, the heart of the issue, the problem, and pull it up from its roots. If you break it off at the surface, you haven't really done anything. You, you've made the problem on the surface go away, but the problem is still there. Does that make sense? This is the Old Testament sacrificial system. It broke off a weed at the surface, and on the surface, it did something. But the heart problem was still there. Does that make sense? There's a heart issue that needs to be handled that the blood of bulls and goats and calves could not do. Sure, on the surface, sin had been pushed back for a while, but it was still, as we sing about, a crimson stain. It temporarily suspended the judgment of God against sin, but did not satisfy. Guys, we have a heart problem. We have a heart problem. 
We have a problem in our roots, and only a greater sacrifice can bring true perfection, which is what we desperately need if we want to be in heaven with God. The reason I say that is that your problem is bigger than your behavior. Your problem is bigger than your behavior. Your behavior is on the surface. You can break off behavior and change it real quick, but that doesn't change your heart problem. We've got a bigger problem than our behavior. We don't need to, and this is part of our problem, is that we come to church and I'll tell you what, a lot of pastors even preach a message of behavior modification instead of getting to the heart of the issue. They say, well, if you just go and try harder, if you just go and do better, if you just go and, and uh, have better discipline, if you just go and make better habits and have better strategies and be a better dad and be a better mom, that does nothing for you. I can't preach that way because your problem is not your symptoms. Your problem is your sickness. And your sickness is not here Your sickness is right here. And we make a grave error when we come into this place and we come to church and we we expect some sort of change on the outside. We say, man, I come in and I want to change this part about me or change this part about me. If you do that, you're simply breaking off the weeds of your life at the surface. You're not changing anything. God does not want you to come in here and modify your behavior. He wants you to come in here ready for him to modify your heart inside out. So he says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. The fruit doesn't just happen. It comes from the life of that tree. And the same is true of us. There is a reason why. If you've come in here, come into church, wherever you've been a part of your church, or maybe you haven't been for a while, and you're like, man, I just try harder, and I come in, I hear a good message, I'm going to go and change things. There's a reason why you leave and feel like that's a vain effort. Because it is. Your problem is not behavior. You have a heart problem. And if you don't get to the heart of the matter, you will not see a lasting change. Yeah, you may be able to change something for a short term, but it doesn't bring lasting change. Like snapping off that weed at the surface, it doesn't change anything. You need something bigger than religious behavior modification. You need a heart transformation. That's why, and the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. That's why the next thing he says is, consequently, in verse five. He says, consequently, and that's number two that I want you guys to see, that we don't just need a reminder of sin. We need a removal of sin. We need the removal of our sin. And verse 5 is really a neat way that he begins it. He, so he, he unpacks this desperate need and this vain effort, and then he uses that word, consequently. It introduces that Jesus' arrival was God's way of addressing the preceding problem. I love this. I mean, it just it works out mechanically so well. Verse 5 then says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. He's speaking to the Father, using the Psalm, Psalm 40 to do so. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Again, he's quoting Psalm 40, the author of Hebrews is, and he's saying that basically God was using this to look toward the Messiah. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 is what it is. This psalm was written by David, and David was writing and saying that he is devoting himself entirely unto God. He says, I know, God, that you instruct me to do sacrifices. I know that you expect me to do these things. But I also know that you want all of me. That's why he says my body. I want you, I'm going to give you all of who I am, not just the sacrifices, myself, my whole heart. He says, it's interesting, right? Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. And you may be thinking, didn't he ask for that? I mean, he didn't desire them. Didn't he desire them? God was the one that instructed those things in the first place. Well, yes, God, does, God did desire them. He both desired them and did not desire them at the same time, in fact. He desired them because he instructed them. But he desired them in a different way than what the author of Hebrews is saying. In other words, he desired them in a way that suspended his judgment. 
but he knew that there was no way that they could be desirable to permanently save the one that was bringing the offerings. God desired them as a sign of suspension of his punishment on sin, but they were not desirable to forever satisfy that punishment. God desired a perfect sacrifice. And that's why it says in verse 5 there, but a body you've prepared for me. He's saying all these bodies, bodies after bodies, carcasses of all these animals and bodies and bodies and bodies. Jesus then says, but a body you prepared for me. What does that mean? The pre-incarnate son of God, understanding that God is coming to him, the father is coming to him and saying, you're going to receive a body because you too are going to lay that body down. This is what it goes on to say in verses 8 and 9. 8 through 10 are an explanation of this Psalm 40. So look with me real quick. 8 through 10, uh, start with 8 and 9. It says, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. 9. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, those, the law sacrifices were done away with. The sacrifice through Jesus' body was God's will to be ushered in. Verse 10 is sort of the hammer that he drops. And by that will, we have been sanctified, meaning made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Not an animal, but the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And those last three words are powerful. Once for all. Once. They're used to it being repetitive and constant. No, once for all. We've seen this phrase once for all a few times already. Hebrews 7, 27. And the reason I'm, I'm pointing these out to you, by the way, is because with repetition should come attention. Hebrews 7, 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Once for all. What we're going to see next is this contrast of priestly duties. And this is kind of cool. Maybe I'm just a dork like that, but I think this is cool. Look at verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly. See the word daily, see the word repeatedly. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There's two kinds of priests that are mentioned here. One is Jesus, the other are all the priests. He mentions some priests stand, and there's another priest who sits. Uh, my dad, when I was a kid, he loved the show Seinfeld, and I still like the show Seinfeld a lot. It is, uh, it's silly, and I, it makes me laugh, especially George Costanza. He's an amazing written character. And on one of the episodes of Seinfeld, we're not going to watch the clip, so just don't think we're going there. I'm just going to explain it to you this time. We're, you know, last couple of weeks have been interesting. Uh, so George, and I think I can't remember if he's married to Susan or not, engaged one, one of the two. Um, they're in a, a department store, and there's a security officer that's standing in the department store. Listen, and uh, he just is mean mugging the whole time. He looks upset. He looks angry. He looks like he's miserable to be at work. Maybe some like you guys. Um, and he's standing all the time. And every time George sees him, he's like, man, this guy is standing. And so he talks to Susan and says, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to talk to him because they should get this guy a chair. Like, he should be able to sit down and do his job. And Susan says, no, he needs to be engaged. If he's on his feet, he'll be able to be quick to react. He's a security officer. And George says, I actually disagree. I think that if he's better rested, 
he will do better at engaging the, the situation. So they have this disagreement. And so Georgia asks him, he just says, hey, it, would you take a chair if they gave one to you? And the security officer says, who wouldn't? Who would rather stand than sit? And so George takes that. He then, this is, I didn't include to say this, but he then talks to Jerry Seinfeld and says, I have this uh, detection where I can sense another human being's suffering. And Jerry says, are you sensing anything right now? That's a great line. But anyway, so, so then the next scene is that George eventually comes back, and he brings a chair with him, and he gives the guy a chair. And he's now seated, and that's the big smile that he, he expresses whenever he receives it. And then he goes, not bad, not bad at all, just like that. And so George feels very gratified and fulfilled in doing this because no longer is this guy standing, he's now seated. The only problem with that is Susan was actually right is that he got seated, and then at the end of the episode, someone comes and robs the department store, and this is what he's doing. <laughs> he's taking a nap in the rocking chair, because the principle there is that when you're seated, you're not on guard. When you're standing, you're at active duty. Thank you, guys. You can take that down. The author's illustration, and talking about standing versus seated priest, he's saying every priest stands, meaning he's at work. He's standing. The priests are at work. They are going to work. He uses the word daily, repeatedly, and then mentioning the sacrifices says never. Meaning that those sacrifices suspend God's judgment on, on sin, but they do not satisfy God's judgment on sin. But what does it say about Jesus? He's not standing. He's seated. Why? Because he sat down after making a single offering for sin. He did not suspend God's punishment on sin. He satisfied it. Ongoing helpless work, hopeless work, versus Jesus proclaiming on the cross, it's finished. I'm not, I'm not standing to work anymore. Now, I realize God is still at work. Christ is still interceding on our behalf. Right. The priestly work of Jesus is completed. That's why he proclaimed it is finished. Verse 14 then says, For by a single offering, don't miss the word single, he has perfected, there's that word again, perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified, has perfected for all time. All time means forever, but perfected. That's an interesting word. He says that word perfected several times in this letter, as we've already pointed out. So that must mean that we need to hear it, perfected. We must need to hear that word, perfected. And you may be thinking, I'm far from perfect. Like perfected? If that's the work of Jesus, then maybe I ain't got it, because I do not feel perfect. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding, you don't feel perfect. You're not but that's what makes this verse so incredible, is that you know just how imperfect you really are. And yet, what God's Word says about you is that you, if you're in Christ Jesus, have been made perfect. Perfection, please hear this. Perfection in this passage, in this book, is not a behavioral accomplishment. It is a positional assignment. Perfection is not a behavioral accomplishment. It is a positional assignment. Now, are you perfect? No. But in the eyes of God, you have been declared perfectly righteous. Not because of what you bring to the table, once again, but because of what Jesus has given to you for your glory, for his glory, and for your good. In other words, you are wrapped in a wardrobe that says righteous when you have no business wearing that wardrobe. Amen. On the outside, you're working. Yeah. Are you perfect? No. But man, on judgment day, if you're in Christ, he sees you and says, that one's wearing the righteousness of my son. He is wearing perfection. Are you perfect? Yes and no. Yes and no. One of the words, you guys ever see people wearing those wristbands or maybe on a t-shirt that says that word, it's Greek, tetelestai. You ever seen that? 
Uh, that's a kind of a common thing. I've seen people get it tattooed on tetelestai. It means it is finished. It's what Jesus proclaimed, or at least it says in the Greek, what Jesus proclaimed on the cross. It is finished. That word, um, tetelestai, it, it's rooted in the same word that this word perfection is rooted in, uh, telio. And so they're rooted in the same word. And what they denote is not, again, behavioral perfection, but they are denoting completion. When Jesus says it is, or tetelestai, it is finished, not what he's saying is everything's perfect. He's dying. That doesn't sound perfect. He's saying it is completed. It is finished. Uh, you guys ever see you know, like a cartoon or something, those t- pirates, they got that telescope that it's like, it's bunched up like this. I've, I think I've used this analogy before. It's bunched up like this, and then when they want it to zoom in, what do they do? Extend it, right? The word teleo, it comes from the same root for telescope, and it means for something to be completed. It's pulling that thing out as far as it needs to go until it reaches its completion, where it zooms into its fullest degree, what it's supposed to be designed for. This is what Jesus is saying, is that all this plan of redemption was leading up, and now he can proclaim completed. Now, the author of Hebrews is here saying that you are in a journey, but when you gave your life to Jesus, and he was the once-for-all sacrifice for you, he says, for you, to you, completed. You're a work in progress. He who began a work in you has not finished it until the day of Christ Jesus, right? But you are completed. You are right in the eyes of God. In other words, God has, by his hand, made you what you could never, ever, ever be apart from him. He has made you guiltless. He has made you innocent. He has made you clean. He has made you forgiven. Where you may feel guilty, you may feel guilty all the way through. Not innocent, but guilty. You may feel unclean. You may feel like you have everything against you, sin all against you. He can say guiltless, innocent, clean, forgiven. 1 John 3.20. If you don't know this verse, I would really encourage you to know it, man. Write it down. Put it somewhere where you can revisit it. 1 John 3.20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. He knows you better than you know you. And he says, you're made right. You're perfect. You think, man, I, I just, it's hard to wrap my mind around that. I don't feel that way. Can I just tell you something? In so many ways, God is greater than your feelings. A lot of application we could have about that one, especially in our culture, so feeling-driven. But I'm going to channel this more toward what we're getting at in our passage, is that our feelings can make us feel endlessly guilty. Our feelings may make us feel like we have no self-worth, like we're just worthless. Our feelings may make us feel hopeless and in utter despair, that we have no meaning, that we are meaningless. That may be what our feelings communicate. And you may be looking at your life and exercising them introspection, saying, Caleb, you don't understand. All these things that I've done, I'm I'm the worst person here. You don't know what I've done. God does. God does. And when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. It literally says God knows everything and everyone in every possible way. That's what that means. What God says about you is truer than what you say about you. And I know that in times of solitude, especially if you're in a season of discouragement or depression, you just dig yourself into a hole, a pit of despair. And in those moments, can you just please hear this verse? God knows you better than you. And when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And when he says you have been made perfect, believe him. Believe him. I know it's hard to wrap our minds around that, but we must believe God when he says something is true. Imagine if you lived the next 365 days of your life sin-free. Imagine it for a moment. 
If you, live, you, you can't live the next 365 minutes sin-free. Imagine you live the next 365 days of your life sin-free. How do you think God would see you? We assign this mentality with our own secular experience. We think, what if, if my kids did that, I'd see them a whole lot differently. Man, my kids, whatever. But that's wrong. If you did that, 365 days consecutively sin-free, you could live sinlessly the rest of your life. And as much as that would honor and please God, and man, it would, you would be no more perfected and innocent and clean in his sight than you are right now. That's powerful. That's hard to believe even, I think. But when you don't believe it, God is greater than your heart. Believe it. He has perfected you, complete. If Jesus said it is finished, you couldn't, there's nothing more that you can do to gain innocence than Jesus has already done. Mm. He has perfected. He's also perfecting. So there's, again, the already and not yet. Already we've been made perfect, but yet we're still in a work in progress. We missed the target. We've earned a prize, but also God has empowered us to go and live differently. And that's the third thing, is that we've been given a position with progression. We've been given a position with, God willing, progression. Back in verse 14 that we read just a second ago, it says those who are being sanctified. And this word sanctified can be taken in two words, two, two ways. It comes from the same the prefix sanct, meaning to be made holy. You may call this a sanctuary. The reason why is because this is a set-apart place for us to worship. But when we think about the word sanctify, there's two ways that we can take that. You can take that positionally, or you can take that progressively. And honestly, I'm not sure which one is intended here from the author of Hebrews. Positionally, we're made perfect. We're sanctified. We're set apart and made righteous before holy God. But progressively, it's like you said a moment ago, perhaps, I'm not perfect. Yeah, exactly. Because we are progressively to grow more into the image of Jesus. We saw this already in verse 10, the positional, and perhaps in verse 14, progressive. But it goes into verse 15 and 16 and kind of gives some neat insight into our progress. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. This is saying that the Holy Spirit was speaking the words of Jeremiah, the prophet in Jeremiah 31. This is what we're quoting next. Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. The Spirit bear witness. There's this comparison of the law. I will put my laws on their hearts in just a few moments. We're going to see something about lawless deeds in verse 17. First, the law. When the Bible says that he put the law on the hearts and the minds of believers, that's the Holy Spirit entering into your life as a saved Christian person and him instructing you and guiding you and counseling you in the ways to honor God. In other words, written to Jewish Christians here, right? They had to etch things on a scroll. They had to etch things on paper. They had to etch things in stone. Those were the tablets. Those were the laws. Those were the commandments. And back in Deuteronomy, he even said, put it on your doors. Put it on your foreheads. Put it everywhere so that you can put it all around you. The Spirit now is testifying, no longer is it needing to be around you. It is in you, the Word. And certainly there's more to it than just that. But the Word of God is in our hearts. The law on our hearts and minds meaning that God will empower us, if we're in Christ, to obey. That's why it says Ezekiel 36, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who does that say is the author of that? God is. I will cause you to be careful, to obey. So one thing that we can take away from this is the desire to obey 
doesn't come from human beings. It's from God. If you don't desire to obey God, if you don't desire to go and produce fruit, you don't desire to, to pray or read your Bible, ask him for desire. He's the author of it. Now, that's not saying it's going to be easy, but you are not instructed or called. or God doesn't give you the power to do that on your own. Ask him that he would strengthen you and empower you to go and live a lifestyle of obedience. By the way, that doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means sin, sincere progression. God does not expect out of you sinless perfection. He understands your fallen condition. But if you're in Christ, there should be sincere progression. But when we fall short, I love these last two verses. Then he adds, when we fail, right? I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In other words, I've given them the law. I've given them the way to obey me. When they don't, I'll remember their lawless deeds no more. Their sins are gone. Verse 18 then says, Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. If you had a a loan officer and they said, Hey, your debt is forgiven. And you'd say, Man, praise the Lord. I'm so thankful that debt is forgiven. And then a month later they said, Pay up. You'd say, You said the debt was forgiven. And he said, Well, for a while, but not really. That wouldn't make any sense, right? When God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin, he's saying there's no longer a death payment for those that I have made clean. Man. No longer condemned as lawless. You hear that word lawless, I think about an outlaw. Let's be terrified of the law finding them, right? We love movies like that where there's an outlaw on the run, and if the cops or the sheriff or whoever catches up to the outlaw, there's punishment, right? That's us. Apart from Jesus, we're an outlaw, and we are afraid of judgment day coming upon us. But now God says their lawless deeds are gone. From sin-stained outlaw, from criminal to forgiven. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer guilt. Made perfect, being perfected. With the position should come progression. Not sinless perfection, but sincere progression. And I'm just going to ask you a word of application. If you don't see sincere progression in your life, what is the confidence that you have that he's in you? There's a formula here. If there is change happening in your heart, are you the same person today, spiritually speaking, that you were a year ago? that you were five years ago. If the Spirit of God is living in here, you shouldn't be. Not that you're perfect. Man, this room is full of broken people. Goodness. But this room should be full of people that are progressing to godliness because while we're not yet made perfect, we are being made perfect. Maybe you've been coming to church and the reason why there's not a sincere progression is because you've just been snapping your weeds off at the surface. Coming in here and hearing a message. Saying, that was a good message. Hmm. A lot of stuff to take away. A lot of stuff I can work on and try harder on. But it's produced nothing. And there's a reason for that. That perhaps the reason is that you're coming in here every Sunday for behavior modification, just breaking those weeds off at the surface. And you've never asked God and allowed God to dig deep within you and do a heart-wrenching, changing 
Transformation. No one in this room can be made new apart from allowing God to make them new from the inside out. If that's you today, there is good news. I'm not asking if you've prayed a prayer. I'm not asking if you've been dunked in the water. I'm asking, have you been made new? And today can be the day of salvation for you. Because the reality is, everyone in this room has missed the mark. We miss the target. Every day we miss the target. Everyone in this room has missed it. And you're not surrounded by people who have it together. I'm reminded of this every week, man, as a pastor. I have conversations with people that y- you see them in here and you think, they got a pretty good life. Like, they look like they got it together. <sighs> There's just so much despair in this room. Many of you missed the mark greatly this week, didn't you? And we think that we're the only one going through it because everybody else is good at pretending. But I'm telling you that you are surrounded by people who have missed the mark and have no business sharing any sort of prize in this room. But I will leave you with this. If you trust in Jesus, if you have made him your Savior and your Lord, then you have the real reality that while your heart condemns you, you can be assured in knowing that Jesus hit the target that you could never hit. And Jesus shares with you the prize that you could never earn. Today, we praise Jesus that he is what we could never be, and that is perfect.